This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. But are you guys ready to jump in for tonight? Oh man, tonight is so cool. We are kicking off our series in Matthew, and it's titled, Jesus is King. And that is Matthew's theme from the beginning to the end, is to show us that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He doesn't just sit on the throne of David, he sits on the throne of all creation. The heavens are his throne, and the earth is just his footstool. That is Jesus the Christ. And so we're jumping in. This is going to be a series that will take us several months into 2022. And tonight we get to open with something that I didn't realize how cool this could be. We're going to open with the very first verses of Matthew. Did anybody bring your new Bibles tonight? Anyone have your Bibles? Hold them up if you have your Bibles. Awesome. So you're going to get home and you're going to write some notes in your Bibles when you get home. Awesome. Well done. Well done. Oh, man, may those Bibles have been seeds planted into your lives that will just grow and grow and grow. And I totally respect the people that leave your Bibles at home because you don't want to forget them here. So good job, you guys. You guys ready to dig into this? I'm so thrilled. So Matthew, the book of Matthew, was written by the tax collector that Jesus recruited into his discipleship. And Matthew was, being a tax collector, was educated in Hebrew and Greek and probably Aramaic. He could read and write in those languages. He understood math probably better than most of us do. And so he was this highly intelligent guy. And he wrote his gospel somewhere in probably the early 60s. So it was one of the earlier documents uh, of, that were written about Jesus. And Matthew intends to convey to his readers that Jesus actually lived that he actually died, and Matthew saw it with his own eyes that Jesus resurrected from the grave. This is Matthew's intent and his purpose. Now, before we kick off, I want to ask some questions. What do you think of when I use the word heritage? How does that bounce around your head? Heritage. The inherited, maybe pride of your family. Maybe that's tied up in your ethnicity. Maybe it's tied up in traditions or culture or maybe even uh, artifacts that were passed down from earlier family members. Maybe this, this Bible from a great-great-grandfather or, or a watch or a necklace or something. What do you think of when you think of heritage? You know, for like, I don't know, a little bit less than 100 bucks, you can find out your genetic pie chart. Does anyone in here actually know, like, what's your, like, ethnic background? I'm, like, Italian, a little German, a little British, maybe Native American. What do you guys? Eli, yeah. French, awesome, yeah. Irish, top of the morning, yeah. Scottish, well done, well done. What else? Do you wear kilts on the weekend? Because that would just be, like, amazing. No kilts? No, all right. Yeah, what else? Where else are you guys from? Yeah. Cajun, yeah, a mix of everything, right? 
What else? Anybody else have a cool? Yeah, what is it, Gavin? You're, okay, you're just waving. Hi. Yeah, go ahead. Irish, another Irish woman. All right, anybody else? Micah, what's up? Finish. What's that? Finished. Finish. That is so cool and random. I love it. You know, between 80 and 100 bucks, you can actually look up your family tree online. And you get to look and see, like, whoa, my ancestors lived through these crazy events. Maybe some of your ancestors were cool people. Maybe some of them were terrible people. You know, the butcher of Chicago who killed 30 people. And you're like, oh, why am I always drawn to butcher knives? Some people put a lot of their identity into their heritage. Now, the Jewish culture, they... For them, their heritage was of paramount importance. They would sit around campfires at night telling stories mingled up with genealogies and ancestries. They would memorize their ancestry going thousands of years back. Where people sit sit around and talk sports now, back then they sat around and talked genealogies. Kids would grow up knowing who their great, 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 greats were. This was of paramount importance. And the Old Testament would weave genealogies in between stories for several reasons. One of the reasons they wove it in is because they wanted to say, this is not a once upon a time story. No, no, the story that I'm telling you was woven into real history. This is a true story, and we can see where it happened in our genealogy, where it fits in the historical story of the world. Another reason that they would weave it in is because they wanted to show how their family was unbroken all the way back to the beginning of time, which is pretty cool. I doubt any of us can do that. Another thing that they would they love genealogies for is that it showed God's persisting faithfulness to their family all the way back. They could trace God's promises. So Matthew opens up his book by appealing to his audience who are Jewish Christians living in Israel. This is sort of like ground zero of Christianity, and they're all former Jews. So he appeals to them by opening his book with a genealogy. And it's a genealogy that's saying, no, Jesus is not a once upon a time story. He happened in real historical events. Jesus can trace his history all the way back. And you know what? Jesus is evidence of God's faithfulness. So let's look at it. Let's put the genealogy up there. Holy smoke. Most people skip over this. Most people, whenever they read Matthew, they jump right to verse 18 and they start with Jesus' birth narrative. Birth narrative. But we're going to plunge in. Now, you may get a little bored. You may days off, and I give you full permission to do that. But if you want to try to hang with me, to have the mental fortitude to bear with me, try to think of stories of every name that you recognize. Maybe if you hear the name Isaac, what story does that bring up? The kid that almost got sacrificed, right? How about, uh, what's another one? Uh, Ruth. What do you think about Ruth? Married Boaz. Absolutely. So try to think of stories. Do we have that up there? I don't know why it's not coming up. No? No genealogy? Go for it. All right, Matthew 1 through 17. Woo! Are you guys ready for this? Here we go. And I would like some big credit for pronouncing some of these names. All right, let's start at the beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. What's up? How you doing over here? And Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David, actually, there should be a break right there. This is the first section right there. David, the king, and up right here. That's the first section of names. You need to know that. Hold on to that. Now let's pick it up. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. If that dude was skinny, I would have been so disappointed. I mean, this guy is, but he's got to have attitude. He's got to be like, what's up, Jehoshaphat? How you doing? You know? And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jechaniah, and Jechaniah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. Right here, this is another break in the text. We're starting a new collection of names. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechaniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Please say that three times fast. Congratulations, you guys sound terrible. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azur, and Azur, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David, remember I told you there are breaks in the text, are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Woo! All right. Matthew has not just provided us with a list of names. What you saw in our American mind skims over things that a Jewish reader would catch immediately. Because Matthew changes things. And he weaves themes into what he's doing. And as soon as a Jewish reader sees these, they're immediately going to stop and look for more than just a list of names. And that's what we're going to unpack. They have books written on just these first 17 verses because of the layers that Matthew works into it. And of the seven or eight that I found, we're going to talk about three tonight, which is so disappointing because they're so cool. But wait until you see this. This is so cool. What Matthew is doing in this genealogy is he is setting up the themes for the rest of the book. The themes are in there, even though we don't see them at, at face value. And the themes are this. One, Jesus came to set up a new kingdom. Two, oh man, where's my brain? Come down, brain. Jesus came to break the curse. And three, Jesus came for anyone, especially the unlikely. 
And those are the three things we're going to talk about tonight, woven into that really long list of words. Are you ready to begin? This is so cool. All right, let's get the first chunk of text back up there. I'm going to move this thing over here. Verses 1 through whatever that was. Matthew begins at the beginning, literally. You see right here where it says the book of the genealogy? That's where we're going to stop. Book of the genealogy. That is the exact, see Jewish readers, they're going to catch this. That is the exact Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And it's, these are the generations. And then it explains God's creation account. So immediately when you read this, he wants the reader to think all the way back to the beginning. And the second place this is found is in Genesis 5, verse 1 through 5. And this is the genealogy of Adam. So he's pointing back at the genealogy of Adam. And the end of the genealogy of Adam ends like this. And Adam died. Why is that significant? Come on, why is that significant? Because he was made to live forever. What happened? Yeah. He ate the fruit. He disobeyed God. He chose to worship and obey himself and not God. And so at the end of this genealogy in Genesis 5, it's showing that the promise, the curse on Adam was fulfilled. So immediately at the beginning of Matthew's genealogy, he is tossing us back to say, from the beginning, man is under a curse and something's going to be done about it. And this first line right here that's underlined, this line right here is the Old Testament in a nutshell, and it begins with looking back to the beginning where everything went down, the curse of man. And then, okay, so the, the book of the genealogy, and then we get to Jesus Christ. Jesus, very common name. He was Yeshua, also Joshua is the same name as Jesus. But Jesus means, anyone off the top of your head, go. Yahweh saves. So we begin with the book of the genealogy throwing us back to the beginning where the curse happened, and then we step to Yahweh saves. Christ. This is not Jesus' last name. For him to attach Christ to Jesus is huge because the Christ means Messiah in Hebrew, and the Messiah was a hero that they were waiting on that came with a whole bunch of different promises, different things they were supposed to do. And it begins back in Genesis 3. This Messiah, this coming seed of woman, would crush the head of the serpent who brought death into the world, and the serpent would strike his heel. Then we look at Genesis chapter 12. And somehow through the seed of Abraham, this seed of Abraham, this coming one, all the nations are going to be blessed. Then Jesus, then God speaks to David and says, one's going to come after you who will have an eternal throne. Then God speaks to Daniel and says, this son of man is going to reign on the throne of David forever. We have, oh, and Isaiah 53, sin is going to be forgiven through this one who's going to suffer and he's going to carry our sins for us. These were all packed into the image of Messiah. And so for Matthew to have the gall and the brazenness to attach Messiah to the name of Jesus is really saying something right there at the beginning. Then we have that he is the son of David. 
It was David who God promised would have an heir on the throne eternally. So for him to be the son of David means that this Messiah is going to be the rightful king on the throne of Israel in the lineage, heritage of David. David was the hero of the kingdom, of the dynasty. Then the son of Abraham, who God promised Abraham that his descendant was going to bring the blessing to the whole world. Abraham, who is the hero of the Old Testament, the founder of the Jewish family. David, the founder of the Israeli kingdom. Matthew is attaching to Jesus every one of these promises and types. That is the Old Testament, and it's being laid on the shoulders of Jesus to fulfill, right there at the opening line of his genealogy. Isn't that cool? Check this out. <laughs> Let me make sure I don't miss anything. If you were to jump to verse 17, fast forward for me a little bit. He says it very clearly. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were, what number? 14, thank you for following me. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were? 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ were? 14. Why 14? Let me tell you this. Matthew actually omitted four generations of kings to try to whittle his list down to 14, 14, and 14. That's one of the clues that Matthew is a lot less concerned with accuracy and more concerned with conveying theological truths here. So why 14? Why did he go out of his way? Why is he cutting people out to make 14 happen? I'll tell you, and then I'll explain it. He wants a fourfold spotlight on David, on King David. The first reason that we can see that David is the emphasis, keyword analysis, David is the name that repeats more than any other name in the genealogy. Five times David gets mentioned. Also, so that's one spotlight. The second spotlight, David bookends it. He's the first name and he's the last name in the genealogy. Third, Hebrew letters were actually also Hebrew numbers. They did not have vowels, so the name of David would be 464. Anyone want to total that up for me? 14. 14. So every block of names represents... David's name. Third spotlight. Fourth spotlight. David's name is the 14th on the list. This was really important. Go back to the first chunk so we can look at those names in case anybody wants to count them up. I had them in bold. I guess when I transferred, I didn't put them in bold for you. David, let me say this differently. Matthew wants us to look at Jesus through the lens of King David. Because he's making an argument that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. That Jesus came, just like David established the kingdom of Israel, he united and established the kingdom as the first king over the united Israel. Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus talks about for the entire book. The phrase kingdom of heaven is only used in one book of the whole Bible that's by Matthew. And he uses it 32 times in his book. The kingdom of heaven is very important. Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of heaven. His coming in on the donkey was about the kingdom of heaven. 
Pilate questions him if he was a king. Posted over the cross was king of the Jews. Matthew is trying to communicate to us that Jesus establishes the kingdom. Number two, Jesus came to break the curse. All right, jump to the next slide. All right, next one. No, no, next uh, bulk of text. The verse eight. Sweet. All right. You can't see it. Remember how there's 14 and 14? They broke into chunks. The second 14 ends right deportation to Babylon, right here. Boop. This is where the second list of 14 ends. And there should be a gap here before the next one starts. Now, this gap happens. Gap happens, man. Because God cut off the dynasty of David on purpose. So God promises David, you will have an heir on the throne forever. Then God cuts off David's lineage right here at Jeconiah. The Old Testament says that Jeconiah was so evil that God put a curse on him. Let's read it together. Let's go to Jeremiah, if you're with me. Verse, chapter 22, verse 24 through 25, and then we'll jump to verse 30. Is it up there? All right, Jeremiah 22. Slide. Sweet, thank you. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, even if he was my ring on my hand, Yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to give you to your enemies. I'm going to let your kingdom be destroyed and drug away by the bad guy, by your enemy, Nebuchadnezzar. Thus says the Lord, none of his offspring, none of Jeconiah's offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Did God mess up? He tells David that he's always going to have someone on the throne. And then at Jeconiah, God curses him that no one will ever sit on the throne again. Well, I mean, obviously not. Look, this is only five verses later. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. How can God keep both promises? How does God do that? How can he tell David one thing and Jeconiah something different? We find it in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew 1.16. Can you go back to the genealogy? It's going to be the, one of the last slides. There we go. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Are y'all picking up what I'm putting down yet? Let's, let's keep reading. Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But as he, or Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yahweh saves. 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Have you figured it out yet? How can God tell David his heir would sit on the throne and Jeconiah that his heir will not? It's because he did the miracle of a virgin birth so that Jesus is legally and rightfully Joseph's son, but he is not under the biological descent of Jeconiah's curse. Did you follow that? Are you with me? That's one of the reasons that Jesus needed to be born by a virgin was so that he could be the heir of David's throne and be the miraculous heir born outside of the curse. Just like he was born outside of the curse of Adam, which we are all under. The curse of Adam, which Matthew hinted at at the very beginning of this whole thing. I want to read this to get it right. Let's put this slide up. If God can make Jesus free from the curse of Jeconiah with the miracle of the virgin birth and rightful heir to David's kingdom through adoption by Joseph. Our heavenly father will set us free from the curse of Adam through the miracle of spiritual new birth, making us heirs of heaven through adoption by himself. That's Romans 8. That's like tons of scripture packed in to one idea that Matthew is hinting at. How would he do this? By carrying the curse for us at the cross. Look at Galatians 3.13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He who is free is free indeed. This is the Jesus that we serve that loved us so much that he would die cursed a cursed death, carrying the full wrath and punishment of God as our substitute so that we did not have to die under his wrath. That is the Jesus that we serve. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. Jesus came to break the curse. And third, Jesus came to offer redemption to Anybody who would call on him, even the unlikely. Did you notice that in this genealogy were listed before Mary four other women? Did you notice that? Four other women. They were, um, let's bring them back up, the first bulk of text, one through seven. They were Tamar, uh, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba, who isn't even named. She's just called the wife of Uriah. So we have these four women. Man, I wish they were underlined or something. Here we go. Tamar's right there. Uh-huh. Tamar. It's fine. Where's everybody else? Y'all see it? There's Rahab. There's Rahab. Boom. And wife of Uriah. Over here. And did, did Ruth make it on this list? No. Tell me when I'm getting warmer. It's okay. If you see it, that's fine. Hey, there she is. What's up, Ruth? Thanks, guys. You guys are just so good at correcting people. All right. 
First of all, it was irregular to include women in a genealogy. The father, the head of the home, established the nationality and even the religion of that home. So the genealogy would go through his line. But if you're going to involve women, why wouldn't you involve heroes like Sarah or Leah? Why these four women? Hey, that's cool. Let's talk about what these four have in common. First of all, three of the four, and there's an argument for the fourth, but we won't go there. Three of the four have sexually promiscuous backgrounds. Think about it. Do y'all know the story of Tamar? Like, put your arm in the air if you know the story of Tamar. Okay, we're going to do a recap. Judah, son of Jacob, had three sons. He married his first son to Tamar. His son made God angry and God killed him. Deal with that another time. Now, under Jewish law, it's called the Leveret Law, if a brother dies, the next brother is to marry the woman so that she can have an heir and support and protection. It was a protection for the woman. It was woven into their law. And so she gave Tamar to his next son. He made God angry, and he died. God killed him. Again, wrestle with that elsewhere. So Judah got scared, and he refused to marry Tamar to his third son. But what we don't get at face value is that it's through the line of Judah that God is bringing King David and ultimately Jesus Christ. So for Judah to withhold his son from getting married is putting the seed and the promise at stake. This is a big deal. And Tamar, in her faithfulness to family disgraced herself. She dresses up like a prostitute and posts herself along Judah's path and seduces him so that she can get pregnant by her father-in-law. Disgusting. Deal with it later. But what you need to understand is that Tamar was so faithful to her family that she disgraced herself on behalf of the family. And whenever Judah found out what happened, he said this, She is more righteous than I am. That is so big. And she had two sons, and they're listed up here, Perez and Zerah. Another amazing Easter egg that Matthew weaves in that we don't have time to talk about. This is Tamar. Incest is attached to the name of Tamar. Rahab, the prostitute. That gives the spies some place to hang out so they don't get captured by the guards. Remember that? The walls of Jericho come down, her house is safe, they get spared. Bathsheba, the adulterer, the adulteress. The one that, it doesn't even say the wife of David, it says the wife of Uriah because it's reminding us of David's awful sin. He took another man's wife, whether it was by her desire or rape, we don't know. And then got Uriah killed on purpose. Why on earth would Matthew include these women? Because these women have something else in common. They were fiercely loyal to God. They were fiercely loyal to their family. Another thing they have in common is every one of these women have a story of redemption. Every one of them were recognized as righteous, as God-fearing. Think of Ruth that's in this list. Fiercely loyal feared God with all of her heart. 
They are stories of redemption. The people that are unlikely, the hopeless people, the people that you would say, no way, I'm not associating with them. The prostitute? Incest? Adultery? I don't think so. Ruth was, was like this outsider because she was a Moabitess. Moabitess were known for seducing men and then getting them to worship idols. This was her reputation. Every one of these women was also a non-Jew. They were all Gentiles. Which means that Matthew bookends his book with a call of Jesus to Gentiles. Because he opens his genealogy with recognizing four Gentile women. And he closes his book with, Go into all the world, to all nations, and baptize them. Amazing. What is Matthew doing here with this list of women? He's saying that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews or just men. He came for women. He came for Gentiles. He came from the sinners that you avoid for the unlikely. The people that you would say, they'd never, they would never. They're just, they're just terrible. Jesus has them in mind. Jesus came to offer redemption to anyone that would call on him, even the unlikely, who is like our God. And there's four other amazing Easter eggs that I just don't have time to get into. This stuff is so cool. But if you want to check them out, go on iloveelevate.com, podcast tab, and you can download the PDF, and it's all in there. Amazing stuff. Easter eggs, Easter eggs, Easter eggs. Okay. If you want to learn more, here's a question to go check out. Further inquiry, why are Matthew and Luke's genealogies of of Jesus completely different? Go check it out. Let it rock your world a little bit. This family tree that we have at the beginning of Matthew is full of men and women, Jews, Gentiles, heroes, prostitutes, kings, idolaters, and Jesus. His genealogy is not about individuals. His genealogy is a glaring testimony to God's faithfulness throughout time, which Matthew is saying his faithfulness has culminated and been fully realized in the person of Jesus as Messiah, which is why his genealogy ends with Christ. This is what Matthew wants to communicate to us. He will establish an eternal kingdom. He will break the curse of sin. And he will be a redeemer to everyone who calls on his name. I read a neat article in Helm magazine. I didn't go looking for it, but I found it. And I thought it was really cool. This woman at 54 years old, like, you know, halfway through her life, maybe a little bit past halfway, discovered that her father who was very significant in her life. Her mother was emotionally abusive and her father was like the place of safety for her. That he was not her biological father at 54. And she found out like haphazardly. She was just doing one of those those, uh, genetic mail-in tests and it came back and it was like, what? This doesn't make sense. And then she traces her ancestry and finds out that her half-sister is not her half-sister. And within 36 hours, her Husband's a reporter, and she's a writer. So within 36 hours, she tracks down this crazy story about her family. She finds out that her parents were infertile. 
she finds out that they go to this this um, the sperm donor clinic on a college campus that the doctor swapped the samples and then found out that her parents didn't even know about it and then tracked down her biological father who was actually had already died, but she found a video of him giving a medical seminar and he looked eerily like her and even had her mannerisms. So within 36 hours, her whole world was flipped and she wrote a book, and the whole book is about how she had to like wrestle with and rediscover her identity with the shocking news that her heritage was not what she thought it was. If you have not given your life to Jesus... you should also have a serious identity crisis. Jesus looked at those who denied him in the face and said, you are not of your father Abraham. By denying me, you are of your father, the devil himself. That's supposed to rattle us a little bit. We're pretty convinced that we're born basically good. And we're just trying to like kind of make our way to heaven. And scripture teaches us that we are not basically good. We are at our very core evil. And all the thoughts of our heart are stained with our selfishness and our pride and our lusts and the lies of our father, the devil himself. I'm not waiting until you're 54 to let you know that if you have not called on Jesus as your Lord, if you are not part of his family tree, you need to have an identity crisis tonight. But there's beautiful, beautiful hope. I want to give you one more Easter egg about this genealogy. Bring up the third bulk of text. This is so cool. Did anybody count names? I wanted them in bold so somebody would sit there with a scowl on their face the whole time. Remember Matthew says there's 14, there's 14, and there's 14? Yes. So if you were to count, beginning at Babylon, we're not going to do it because that would take too long, uh, father of Shealtiel, and you count from Shealtiel all the way to Jesus, you actually get not 14, but 13 names. And it stresses people out. But a lot of scholars actually believe that the missing 14th name is Matthew's subtle way of saying, Joseph, the father of Jesus, Jesus, the father of the church. That it is an open position for those who call on Jesus as their Lord to become a part of the genealogy of Christ. To become sons of Abraham. Actually says it in Corinthians that those who are obedient to God are sons and daughters of Abraham. Check this out. Oh, I keep coming down here and I got to run back up here. All right. This is Romans 8. 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If God can do the miracle of the virgin birth to set Jesus free outside of the curse of Jeconiah and make him an heir to David's kingdom by the adoption of Joseph, He is prepared to do a miracle in your heart tonight to set you free from the curse of Adam. 
And he will give you a new birth to make you an inheritance of the kingdom of heaven by adopting you himself. That is the God we serve. And so I welcome you. May you have a painful and fearful identity crisis if you are not in Christ tonight. But I want to give a shout out to my believers in here. Those who have called on Jesus to be saved, who put their faith in what he did at the cross and his resurrection. Those of you in here who have surrendered your lives to Jesus Christ. That's us. That God has adopted us into his family so that we can call out dad and become joint heirs with Christ for the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, we have every security. We have everything to stand on for this life and the next. There is no fear. There is only hope before a living God. Oh, what a God we serve. That would welcome you to come be a part of a rich, rich heritage. And it's full of kings and heroes and men and women that sacrificed everything in faith to God. A heritage that was won for you at the cross through Jesus enduring the full wrath of the curse that you were under. Thank you, Jesus, for your gift on the cross. Quick recap. Matthew uses a genealogy to introduce the major themes of his gospel. The themes are, Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne and established the kingdom of heaven. Jesus broke the curse of Jeconiah and breaks the curse of Adam from his people. Jesus offers redemption to everyone, even the unlikely. Through Jesus' life and death, we can be adopted into his family. Here are your two challenges for tonight. One, if you are not a part of the family of Jesus Christ, give your life to him tonight. Before you leave this place, talk to a leader. Pray with a leader. Go home. Get in the dark. Get on your knees before God and repent of your sin. And call on him as your Lord. Challenge number two. It would be really fun. Draw or write out your family tree, and then every day pray for a couple different names, living names, on that list so that you are now more connected and being prayerful for the salvation, the health, the, the, the finances of the people of your family. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth you have woven in to 17 verses of names. Thank you, Lord, that for centuries your people have looked at this list and seen your promises. Lord, I pray that you will come and be the king over every heart in here tonight. That we will bow down before you. That we will cry, Hosanna, save us. Lord, that, that on that day, whenever we die, in whatever way, and we come back to consciousness, we look up at a throne where sits our king. Not a judge, but our father sitting on the throne. And he will be a familiar father, Lord. A father that we have walked with all of our lives. Lord, and he will be the one that lifts us up off of our face. And when we hug him, we will recognize his scent. The scent that we have known for decades. Now, 
holding him in person. Oh Lord, may everyone in this room look up in that moment to their king. Thank you, Lord, for the rich heritage you have laid out for us. Thank you for that empty 14th space. Lord, I pray that every name in here is filled in there. We love you, Lord, and we give tonight to you in Jesus' holy and precious, wonderful, incredible, awesome, spectacular and stupendous name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.